Coming up on Stu Does America, Mediaite's John Ziegler is here to explain how Democrats and the media are conspiring to keep schools closed. And we'll look at how the minimum wage is screwing over the heroic workers of the pandemic. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and podcast. Watch every episode completely free. What a deal. Just head to studosamerica.com for all the links to that, social media and everything. Or you can consider a subscription to Blaze TV. We would love that because, I mean, people are getting canceled all the time. I don't know if you've noticed that. We need to have places for conservative voices. Head to blazetv.com slash stew. Enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And you'll save 30 bucks. Actress Gina Carano has been fired from her job on The Mandalorian because of so-called offensive social media posts. Let's see what fake threshold of offensiveness the left has come up with this time. And do Gina Carano. Stu does America. So have you watched The Mandalorian? Mandalorian is a Disney Plus series from the Star Wars universe. It was originally released on November 12th, 2019. That's just five days before the earliest unconfirmed reports of the very first case of COVID-19. So a few months later, everyone in America is going to be stuck at their homes for months and would watch every show that has ever been created. So it's no surprise that The Mandalorian has been a huge success. One of the breakout stars from the series has been Gina Carano, a former women's MMA fighter turned uh, actress who plays the role of Cara Dune on The Mandalorian. Everything seems like it's going pretty well so far, right? A huge breakout character, a huge breakout series. It seemed like nothing could stop her. But there was a massive, gigantic problem. She seems to be at least moderately conservative. So now she no longer has a job. That's where these things go. Here's a statement from Lucasfilm. Gina Carano is not currently employed by Lucasfilm, and there are no plans for her to be in the future. Nevertheless, her social media uh, posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and uh, unacceptable. Is this an example of cancel culture gone wild? Or did she really do something wrong? I mean, the accusation is pretty serious here. Has she made, quote, Social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities? That sounds really bad. Well, let's look at the post that resulted in her firing. We don't know for sure it was this post because Lucasfilm didn't specifically identify it in their statement, but it has been widely reported as this particular post. It says, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. Well, I mean, obviously Jews were beaten by Nazi soldiers, too, but they were also encouraged to be beaten uh, by people in their own neighborhoods. It goes on, because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. This is absolutely true. This was Joseph Goebbels, basically his job description. And how is that any different from hating someone for their political views? She asks. There's a picture from uh, Nazi era of uh, Jews uh, and and their their tribulations of that period. First, the question, I guess, is does that satisfy the standard Lucasfilm put out in the statement? Does it denigrate people based on their cultural and religious identities? I mean, absolutely not. It doesn't denigrate anyone other than Nazis and people in Nazi Germany. I mean, is that why Lucasfilm was so offended? Were they defending the Nazis? That would be really weird. 
Now, at no point does Carano actually say this post is about hatred being drummed up against her or conservatives in general, though it seems relatively obvious that she might be referring to that. Can you say that comparing that hatred to the Nazi hatred of the Jews is a bit of a stretch? Sure, you can say that. But she never equates the two. There's a little safety tip that I have that is helpful in these circumstances. If you're walking somewhere and there's a split in the road and you have to pick which way to go and you see that one road leads to Naziville, it's usually not a good idea to take just a couple steps down that road. Go the other way. Just because you've taken a couple of steps down Naziville Boulevard doesn't mean you are in Naziville. But it's better to realize where you're headed when you're at the beginning of the road rather than the end. But even if you don't agree with this point and you think it's fine to skip and folly a few yards down Naziville Boulevard, is this really a fireable offense? And before I move on, I, I must address... This absolute nonsense posing as a thoughtful point on Twitter. Uh, so this guy posted, uh, Venn diagram of people outraged that Gina Carano lost her job for pissing off her bosses with her political views and people who were fine with Colin Kaepernick losing his job for pissing off his bosses with political views. There's a fundamental thing you must understand if you're going to watch this show. And I want you to be, this is the most important thing you will ever know. When you watch this show, you must know this is, this is like the price of entry to watch Studios America or listen to Studios America. Colin Kaepernick lost his job before he took a knee. He was benched for Blaine Gabbert before he took a knee. In addition, no one on the San Francisco 49ers, who are not exactly a conservative organization, by the way, no one in the NFL has ever said this, that, that the lack of a job for Colin Kaepernick has anything to do with his political statements. Lucasfilm is saying her political statements in her posts are the problem. So that's a terrible point. And you should be aware you've made a terrible point. You're not the only person on Twitter today to make a terrible point, but that was a terrible point. Now, to be fair, Lucasfilm said it was social media posts, plural. So let's look at the supposedly other offensive posts from Gina Carano. From her Instagram, there's a post with a guy wearing a ridiculous amount of masks with the caption, Meanwhile in California. Does this denigrate people based on their cultural and religious identities? I mean, she is sort of mocking people who wear 20 masks at once. If that's part of your religion, maybe. I don't know. I wouldn't say that's an identity, though. She had another viral mask post. Democratic government leaders now recommend we all wear blindfolds along with masks so we can't really see what's going on. This is mocking people who wear masks over their eyes. But again, I don't think it rises to the level of cultural or religious bigotry. Then you have Bill Murray. Uh, well, it's impeachment day again, mocking the idea of another impeachment, which may, may signal she is a Trump supporter. I can't believe people like that exist in this country. You know, you might think they exist because half of the country voted for the guy, but that's a totally different thing. She also tweeted about election fraud. Now we're getting really scary. We need to clean up the election process so that we are not left feeling the way we do today. Put laws in place that protect us against voter fraud. Investigate every state. Film the counting. Flush out the fake votes. Require ID. Make voter fraud end in 2020. Fix the system. Note the date of this post, by the way, was November 5th, 
two days after the election. She wasn't like tweeting this from inside the Capitol on January 6th as she was hitting a police officer over the head with a flagpole. There's nothing like that going on. And again, you know, what part of this is supposed to be controversial? Protect us against voter fraud? You know, fix the system? Even if you don't think there was any election fraud, there's nothing wrong with protecting it against it happening in the future. You might not like her Trump support. You might think her views are crazy. But as Robbie Suave writes at Reason.com today, Hollywood is chock full of people with quirky political views making dramatic analogies. As Bloomberg's Eli Lake pointed out, Sean Penn is apologist for former Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez. Benicio del Toro dedicated an award to the memory of murderous Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara. Nick Cannon praised Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, a repugnant anti-Semite. Viacom CBS fired Cannon for his remarks, but rehired him after he apologized. And Nick Cannon didn't just praise Farrakhan. He said that Jews and white people are, quote, acting out of fear. They're acting out of low self-esteem. They're acting out of a deficiency. So therefore, the only way they can act is evil. They have to rob, steal, rape, and kill in order to survive. So then these people that didn't have what we have, and when I say we, I speak of the melanated people, (laughs) they had to be savages. For that and more, he was initially fired by CBS, but not Fox. He kept that gig the whole time. And then he was rehired by CBS for saying Jews are evil rapists. That was okay. But Gina Carano can't post a funny mask meme? What makes this all the more ridiculous is that her Mandalorian co-star, Pedro Pascal, was already on the record tweeting basically the exact same thing, except from a liberal perspective, and he's totally fine. Here's the tweet from 2018. It's a picture of Germany in 1944 with Jews behind barbed wire, and a picture from 2018 with kids in cages with the hashtag, this is America. Except, of course, this is not America. It's supposed to be children in cages from the border in 2018, but it's actually Palestinian children waiting at a soup kitchen in 2010. But other than that, it's totally accurate. Is Pedro Pascal going to get fired? Of course not. He has the right view, the correct view. I shouldn't say the right view, the correct view. He's got the pronouns in his Twitter bio. He's going to be just fine, which is amazing because he's much easier to replace than Gina Carano. He has a helmet on his head the whole series. No one would even know if you fired him. What makes this all so incredibly irritating is that The Mandalorian streams on Disney+. Plus, The company that made the movie Mulan in China a place where people are actually held behind barbed wire and in cages. For this movie, Disney specifically thanked eight different Chinese governmental agencies, including four propaganda departments and a public security bureau in the Xinjiang province. So why does that matter? That's where the Chinese government is perpetrating a slow motion ethnic cleansing of Uyghur Muslims right now. Ah, an inconvenient fact there. How can you fire someone for being a moderate American conservative while thanking multiple Chinese communist propaganda propaganda ministries? How can that happen? It's completely insane. And the craziest part is that you might not like the point that Carano was making. She was pointing out that our political divides were causing hatred. And it seems like we're taking a couple of steps down Nazi Boulevard. 
Well, a good example of another step down that same road is when society starts taking away the livelihoods of a hated group because of their religion, their skin color, or their political views because they don't fall in line. And that's what they have done to Gina Carano. They are making her point. Naziville is still far in the distance, thankfully. But we keep taking additional steps down this road. What do you say? Let's turn back right now. Now. Whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, uh, bringing, uh, uh, you know, maybe going through like an audiobook, uh, going through your workout, jamming, uh, you know, to your favorite tunes, you got to have a pair of Raycons. Raycons are the best headphones out there. You don't have the dangling wires that get in the way of everything. Um, and you don't have the stupid, like the Apple things, they got the little like thing that comes below your ear. I don't know, they're so annoying to me. They're not comfortable. Raycons are totally different. They've got great colors and different styles, and they have this comfortable in-ear fit. Um, so it's not like dangling below your ear, like you're wearing earrings. It's, it's like flush to your ear. Like you could put your head on a pillow and fall asleep with these things in your ears if you wanted to. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat-resistant construction. Bluetooth that pairs quickly and uh, seamlessly. It's really easy. I always have problems with my Bluetooth connecting with headphones. Never happens with Raycon. Uh, you know, and it's got enough battery life for six hours of playtime. Uh, so it's, it's fantastic. Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for our listeners, our fans, our little cool kids. Kids Club that we got going on here. All you got to do is go to buyraycon.com. B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash stew. Buyraycon.com slash stew. That's it. You get 50% off your entire Raycon order. Feel free. Grab a pair, maybe a couple. Got a, you know, I mean, if you're a little late for Valentine's Day, great present. 15% off right now. Buyraycon.com slash stew. Buyraycon.com slash stew. I'm joined now by John Ziegler. He's the uh, senior columnist for Mediaite, host of the Individual One podcast. John, thanks for coming on the show, man. Always good to talk to you, Stu. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, let me take you back in time a little bit here to March 2020. You are having a conversation with your kid's principal. How does this go? Well, this is just before the panic started to come in, and I saw the handwriting on the wall, and my then seven-year-old daughter, Grace, uh, was concerned about what the future held regarding schools. And I had a conversation with her principal where I told him, uh, look, uh, clearly you guys are going to shut down uh, schools here in California, uh, but you need to remember one very, very important thing. If you close down without a very specific date for when you're going to reopen, or at the very least, have a very clear standard of what the data threshold is for reopening, you will never reopen, at least not fully. And he looked at me, Stu, like I was from outer space. Uh, he thought I was nuts. And uh, to his credit, uh, we had a conversation recently where he told me, you know what, John, I have thought about that conversation almost every day since. And uh, you were right. Uh, because the problem here is it's, it's almost like a criminal case where the burden of proof has been flipped. The burden of proof used to be on uh, the, the concept that we're going to shut down schools. Are you crazy? The, 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 the evidence to support that must be overwhelming until now we're in the opposite situation where somehow we've gotten into this bizarre circumstance where the, we, we are now the ones with the burden of proving why schools should be open, which is asinine on its face. 
And in an impossible situation, especially when you add the politics to this, which is maybe the most interesting part from a sociological perspective, where you have the teachers unions now uh, battling their own democratic masters. And that's a fight that uh, I don't think is gonna end well for the Democratic Party, even with the news media doing their very best to try to put this fire out or at least contain it. You make this observation often on stories and you're the only person I know who makes it and it's such a smart one. When you talk about that change in the, in the burden of proof, it is, it's such a fundamental thing that we do as human beings, right? And, and it is true, it's like now the, the, the state looks at it and they say, well, if we send kids back to school and God forbid one of them dies of COVID, we're going to be the bad guys. So our incentive internally is to keep these things closed forever because we can't admit we were wrong before. Stu, what you just said there is so important and there's a unique aspect of the COVID pandemic that adds to this. It almost puts it on steroids. And I've seen this in other stories that you're familiar with my, my role in, where when you make a mistake and there is enormous damage because of that mistake, the mistake becomes actually more difficult mm -hmm. to correct. It's counterintuitive, but it's an, it's the nature of humanity, where if you make a mistake, and in, and in this case, catastrophic damage is gonna be done, has already been done, and will be done in the future because of school closings. If you have to be forced to acknowledge that mistake, you own all that damage. Mm -hmm. So what do you do instead? You double, you triple, you quadruple down on the idea that, no, 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 we did the right thing. We saved lives, which is why schools cannot open right now. Even though the CDC says they should, uh, Dr. Fauci says they should, they can't in most of the countries, especially blue America, because if they do and nothing happens, which is in my view, what would be the most likely scenario, uh, then guess what? we will have proven that this was a catastrophic, gigantic mistake with enormous damage. And nobody in charge wants that. Nobody wants the blood on their hands. So now we have to play pretend. And what we do is we actually exacerbate the current damage even more than it already exists, all to protect the backside of the people who made the mistake in the first place. And it's infuriating. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a version of the sunk cost fallacy, right? Where like you have this idea, you know, you sign somebody to a gigantic contract uh, if, to be your quarterback. You spend all this money on them. You can't back out of it because you, you'd be admitting that you were a failure when you signed them. And it just keeps building and building and building on itself. It really, it really is a scary thing that happens uh, to, to the human mind. And it is really showing itself here. You know, that's an interesting analogy. Uh, of course, in this case, the damage is far greater and, and has a far uh, longer shelf life. Because let's be clear about this, Stu. Uh, this is not a situation that's going to be corrected if and when, let's say in September, most of the country gets back to school, which is the best case possible scenario. I'm not terribly optimistic about it, but I think there's at least a chance of that happening. The damage is only going to st start to end then. Uh, this is going to go on for a generation. Mm. We have we have now taught a generation of kids. School doesn't matter. School's not that important. If we have a, a situation where 10% uh, more than the normal expected deaths in a year happens, we're going to shut the whole thing down, even if it doesn't impact kids at all. And oh, by the way, 
teachers have now been exposed through their unions as really not caring that much about education or, or, or about the kids that they claim uh, to be so cared, caring about. I mean, this, this thing is going to have ramifications and a domino effect forever. And the most bizarre part of this politically is that it's the poorest kids, the, the kids who are more often of color that Democrats claim to be champions of that are already suffering the most and will suffer the most into the future. I mean, I can't even comprehend. I mean, my kids have it great. I have my, my eight-year-old Grace uh, has a, 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 as good a situation as she possibly could have. She has no financial concerns. She's suffering greatly. I can't even comprehend what people who don't have the advantages that she has are dealing with this how they are dealing with this and how they will deal with it into the future and the ramifications. I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg for what we're going to eventually see was this catastrophic decision to close schools. Yeah, you know, and it's like the left has talked so much about inequality over the years. They've created and made it much worse with a two-tier society. I mean, I, you know, I'll tell you, here in Texas, first of all, you have the, the red state, blue state split for kids, which is dramatic. In red states, many more kids are going back to school. And, you know, we talk about this before, and, I, you know, I'm a big pr proponent of, of private school. We're lucky enough to have our kids in private school. They went back to school on August 13th, and they've been in school every single day since August 13th. And I mean, they are clearly at an advantage of other kids around us who are at home, maybe doing one day a week in school uh, or trying to do this virtual learning thing, which is a total disaster, not only for the kids, but also the parents and their relationship. I mean, we are making these problems much, much worse, even when science is, has been clear really from the beginning that keeping kids in school is the right thing to do. Well, Stu, I'm going to take this one step further, and this is where your mostly conservative audience, I think, really needs to understand why this is so important. Because even if you're in a, in a situation that's lucky and you're somehow being able to avoid this catastrophe with your own kids, guess what's going to happen? You mentioned the inequality. The inequality that results further, that gets exacerbated further from this, this is not going to be blamed on the pandemic. It's not going to be blamed on schools closing. It's going to be blamed on the systemic racism of America. Mm. And it will be a quote unquote problem that needs to be corrected by all of us. So guess what's going to happen? That, that inequality will be that divide will be supposedly closed through things like reparations, through affirmative action, through all sorts of government actions that we already are seeing at the beginning of the, the Biden administration that 10, 20 years from now are going to get so crazy that things that we would have thought were impossible in the United States of America are going to occur. For instance, and I actually believe, and maybe this is a good way to end the interview because it's kind of like what I predicted with the principal. I believe that in 10 to 20 years, we will not have full property rights here in California. I believe wow. our prop this is all setting the stage for actual property to be taken away, especially from white people uh, in California. And, and it's all being set up by this massive divide in achievement and equality uh, that is being exacerbated by our reaction to the pandemic. Mm. Uh, John, we got to do this again maybe uh, next week or something because I have tons more to talk to you about and we're, we're a little short on time here. Uh, let me just hit you with this. Why are you still there? Is, I mean, <laughs> he is, <laughs> so many people we've known that have moved out of California, gone to places like Texas, gone to places like Tennessee, gone to places like Florida. You've been, I mean, you've been one of the biggest critics of the way they've handled the, the, the situation in California and yet you're still there. Why? 
Well, first of all, the weather is great. Uh, <laughs> I, I played is. golf today uh, in, in February, and it's you know minus uh, 10 degrees in most of the uh, upper Midwest. So I, I will acknowledge that's part of it. But um, if I were to leave, I would have to uh, get divorced from my wife, whose parents still live here in Southern California. <laughs> so uh, until that, cha- that changes – and by the way, they just got vaccinated today. So thankfully, they're still going to be around for a while, hopefully, mm-hmm. at least not because of COVID. So um, – but in five or ten years, if I'm still here – that will be a shocker. Mm, well, I wanted to definitely have you back on. We could go further into this. And I always appreciate an interview where I see Philadelphia Eagles in the background. That's how I know <laughs> you're a good person, John. Uh, John Ziegler, <laughs> uh, columnist for Mediaite, Individual One podcast. Make sure to check him out. John, thanks so much for coming on, man. That was great. Thanks, Stu. All right, back in a second. All right, let me talk to you about life insurance. That's what everyone wants to talk about all the time, life insurance. It makes sense why people get it, of course, uh, especially term coverage, uh, surprisingly affordable. Why not pay you know, a little bit each month to protect the ones you love? If you're asking yourself this question, you got to check out Ladder. Ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R, makes it uh, impressively fast and easy to get covered. You just need a few minutes and a phone or a laptop to apply. Ladder has the smart all algorithms that work in real time, and they can find out instantly if you're approved, and then they can show you uh, where to get the best rate, the best coverage. Uh, there's no hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. And since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross it off your list. Uh, lock in your best rate today and get your family covered with Ladder. Go to ladderlife.com slash stew, L-A-D-D-E-R, life.com slash stew. Be sure to use the slash stew part of the address because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Ladderlife.com slash stew. It's ladderlife.com slash stew. So there's a new development in the story of Don McNeil. He's a reporter at The New York Times. And, uh, you know, you probably don't bother with The New York Times uh, as much as, uh, as, I mean, at all. That's probably the answer to that. Uh, but he was basically their lead COVID reporter. I mean, this is the guy that was on their daily podcast all the time. Kind of the main guy who they've been talking to since like January or February about COVID. He's been like their guy. I mean, this is one of the biggest stories of our lifetimes. And this has been the lead reporter on this. So, you know, he's kind of a big deal over there. Uh, anyway, he went on a, a little uh, jaunt with uh, some students. This could, that start, okay, that, with that start, it could be worse than what the story is. But actually, no, he was on a, a New York Times-sponsored trip where they took a bunch of students, I guess, uh, overseas or something and talking to, uh, re- had reporters there basically as like chaperones and experts. And they were having a conversation with one of the kids, and they asked if, if it was inappropriate for one of their friends to use the N word um, in a, uh, uh, you know, in a in a con- some sort of context, he tried to clarify what the context was and asked, like, were they saying it in like a rap song or were they saying it to just like a like how do they use it? And when he asked that question, he used the actual word, the actual N word. Uh, that was apparently very offensive, uh, was, was re- reported by the, uh, students through to the parents, to the New York times. He was talked to back in like 2019 about this, went on, did all of his COVID reporting. And then uh, apparently it somehow surfaced again and he was fired. Now he never used the word in a derogatory term. He was basically asking, you know, how was the term used? And instead of saying the N word, use the actual word. That's basically the entire accusation. He was fired. He had a big apology letter, blah, 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 blah. 
new, uh, new, and again, this is another one of these stories where these woke reporters and woke people who work at the New York Times are punishing some old guard guy and throwing him out of the building. Uh, update today, this is from Dylan, Dylan Byers. Scoop, the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, uh, he's like their kind of conservative-ish uh, uh, columnist, says that publisher A.G. Sulzberger spiked his column that was supposed to run on Monday morning in which he took issue with the New York Times handling of the Donald J. McNeil case. McNeil was ousted for his use of a racial slur. Um, the McNeil case has created some chaos inside the Times. So what did Stevens take issue with in his unpublished column? He took issue with the fact that the New York Times uh, executive editor um, said, we do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent, which is a bizarre standard. Uh, Stevens writes, do any of us want to live in a world or work in a field where intent is not categorically ruled out as a, is, is categorically ruled out as a mitigating factor? Uh, I hope not. Stephen goes on in this column, which never saw the light of day, to cite famous Lee Atwater quote that uses a racial slur and which the New York Times has cited at least seven times. Is this now supposed to be a scandal, he asks. In an email to colleagues today, Brett Stevens wrote, I wrote the following column on Monday morning. If you're wondering why it wasn't in the paper, it's because A.G. Salzberger spiked it. More to come later. Uh, the uh, executive editor did come out and say, in our zeal to make a powerful statement about our workplace culture, we ham-handedly said something that some of you saw as threatening to our journalism. Of course, intent matters when we are talking about language in journalism. So there you go. Uh, New York Times in scandal everybody. We'll let you know how that one turns out. Back in a second. If you happen to be a reporter that was just fired from your plum gig at the New York Times and now you need to find a new place to live in an area that's not as expensive as New York, you need a real estate agent you can trust. Realestateagentsitrust.com is a place you Don J. McNeil Jr., whatever your name is, can go to because they can actually help you get a good real estate agent that's not going to judge you for your random question to a, to a student on a, on a, on a trip. I, uh, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard to even imagine where this world goes from here. Realestateagentsitrust.com is owned by Glenn Beck, so you know. Glenn's not going to, I mean, jeez. This is a guy who cares about free speech. He's getting criticized all the time. He feels your pain, although... He does not use the N-word, so I don't know if he can be in your little group, Don. Uh, the name says it all. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Uh, get more information and get, uh, get, uh, get hooked up. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Welcome back to the program. Brad Palumbo. He is the opinion editor at the Foundation for Economic Education and a contributing author to the Washington Examiner. Brad, thanks for coming on the back, back on the program. Hey, Stu. Uh, so we have some economic stuff going on right now, and I, I don't know, I find this stuff fascinating. Um, let's start in California. Uh, there's this idea, and it seems like a great idea on its face. Uh, as we've seen a lot of attention uh, through the sort of pandemic era of all the heroic actions of medical workers. But left out of that conversation are people who have been working at like grocery stores the whole time and have never had people clanging pots and clapping for them at a certain time every night. So the city of Long Beach decides to step up with a little hero's pay package. 
Yeah, they did. And it did not work out well for these uh, hero workers. And listen, I fully take your point, right? Grocery workers have been really important for us throughout this pandemic. So I hope they can get a bonus at work, too. But what they did is they mandated it. And I have to say, it's not generous or, or moral or benevolent as a politician to mandate other people's money. That doesn't make you generous, yeah. right? And what happened is that that on top of an existing $14 minimum wage, this new mandate made the minimum wage for grocery store employees $18 an hour in Long Beach. And as a result, Kroger had to close down two of its stores and hundreds of, of these hero workers actually lost their jobs. So it was just big government backfire yet again. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, too, is just like we, we people like to judge these bills based on their intent and how good they make people feel. And there's always the conservative or the libertarian who steps in and is like, hey, by the way, this is going to screw all these people over. And for some reason, that's the mean argument. That's the that's the argument that always gets criticized for being heartless. Yeah, it's unfortunate because they're saying, wow, these politicians passed an $18 minimum wage. They're so good. They're so generous. And then when Kroger has to lay people off, it's, wow, those greedy company executives are so horrible. And it's like, well, no, sorry. I think policymakers should know what they're doing. The economics on minimum wage laws are very clear. You know, there's a clear preponderance of research that shows they're associated with job losses, particularly during a, a pandemic when business margins are already so thin, small businesses across the country are on the brink of collapse. So policymakers should know better. And they might be well intended, but they shouldn't be uh, getting the credit for signing these laws that sound good, but then not getting the blame when they go wrong. And unfortunately, that's what happened here in Long Beach. And as we all know, a minimum wage actually is zero. Uh, so when they close a quarter of their stores and these people are all making zero dollars, it doesn't work out that well. Um, a lot of times, too, I think the, the minimum wage argument is kind of couched in this uh, idea that they're going to do good for people, right? They're going to raise the minimum wage. It's going to do good for people. People are going to benefit out of this. But a lot of times lost in that is that a lot of these big companies like these changes because they are the ones controlling the market. They are the ones who have the uh, ability to take advantage of cost savings to make these. I mean, it puts their competition out of business. Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote about this recently, but Amazon is actively lobbying for a $15 minimum wage. That should be your first red flag, your alarm <laughs> bell that the swamp is in action. Mm. Because you know what? They know they can afford to pay workers. You know, Jeff Bezos has the spare room in his budget to pay workers $15 an hour. But the mom and pops across the country, you know, the small town bookstore that's already struggling to stay open can't handle its minimum wage being doubled by Joe Biden's $15 minimum wage. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, these big corporations, they know that. And so they actually lobby for minimum wage hikes because they know they'll crush small businesses but big corporations will weather them well. And then what big corporations will do, a study showed this, McDonald's passes 100% of the cost of minimum wage hikes onto consumers by raising prices. So it doesn't even help them in the end. Right, because you know a lot of the people who want to eat McDonald's, they might not have tons of money to spend on, on food, hurting those people. Um, what do you think the chances are? I know Biden's trying to kind of jam through this $15 minimum wage in this coronavirus bill, uh, with the $1.9 trillion coronavirus bill. Do you think that has a chance of working or is this sort of a negotiation tactics? You know, one of the things they'll take out as a gift to Republicans. 
Well, I have to tell you, it's scarily close to happening. It might not actually happen, but it's going to get pretty close. And the House Democrats are actually doubled down. They passed it just this morning, actually. Mm. It is in their COVID bill. Now, in the Senate, it might get taken out because the parliamentarian might say you can't do this under the, you know, kind of niche rules for budget reconciliation. And it's also Joe Manchin has said that he doesn't support it. So here's hoping he doesn't cave this time. Mm. So it is possible that it might not pass, but it's boy, it's going to get real close. And that should be scary for uh, workers, small business owners and basically anybody who has an interest in the state of the economy, because, boy, it would be a real disaster. Brad, do you have any faith in Joe Manchin for holding these various lines that every Republican is depending on him for? He seems to be the only person that could ever consider voting for uh, against a Democratic bill. And yet I've seen really very little evidence of it unless the vote isn't close at all. When the votes blow out, yeah, sure, he'll side with Republicans. But when they need him as that 50th vote, I've seen no evidence that this guy is willing to, to buck the party. Yeah, I can. So you have to it is different. Do you go by the words or the actions? He has said vocally recently mm-hmm. he won't support a $15 minimum wage. He won't support a COVID bill that's just partisan and doesn't make any compromises with Republicans. Now, you're right. In the past, sometimes he said that and then got along with the party line. I think this will be a defining moment for his career, though. Is he going to bow down to the Pelosi and AOC left and kind of just rubber stamp the Democratic agenda? Or is he actually going to stand up for his moderate bona fides and and actually take some unpopular votes in his party. And here's hoping he has the spine to do that. Yeah, my guess is at the end, he says, look, we're we're, you know, Manchin says he's not going to vote for fifteen dollars an hour. So it's fourteen eighty five an hour. Joe Manchin held the line. Now he can comfortably vote for it. Uh, That's that's at least what I'm predicting. Um, uh, You also wrote about uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, new bill. Now, the wealth tax to me seems quite clearly unconstitutional. I mean, uh, to the point of like the founders really discussed this early on and 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 kind of you know, threw it away and said, this is not something that you can do. Can you kind of walk people through the history of this? Yeah, so wealth taxes have been tried throughout Europe and actually abandoned because they failed. But you, you, you do note there is a lot of question over whether it would be constitutional. I'm not a lawyer, but a lot of lawyers and constitutional attorneys say it would not be. Uh, but I think, honestly, even more importantly, it's just horrible policy. Mm. When politicians want to discourage smoking, they put a cigarette, they put a tax on cigarette sales. When they want to discourage carbon emissions, they put a tax on carbon. Why on earth, this is Econ 101, would we want to put a tax on wealth and wealth creation? Mm-hmm. You're going to discourage it. You're going to have people taking their wealth to other countries. And let's not think that this is just people, rich people hoarding money under their bed or buying expensive yachts. Most of their assets are actually in business investments that create jobs throughout the economy. And that's what you're going to hit the most. Yeah, I know they were talking about a, a localized version of this in Washington state. And they said, hey, you know, we got Jeff Bezos living here. We've got Bill Gates living here. This is going to be great. And of course, like the answer to this this question is, is the second you put this wealth tax on, you no longer have Jeff Bezos living there and you no longer have Bill Gates living there. These are guys with plenty of mobility. If you start taking away all of their wealth, they're going to go to other countries or other states, whatever, to avoid these taxes. And then you lose all of those jobs, all of that business, all of that revenue, it, makes, it never makes any sense, but it's not about making sense, is it? 
it's not about making sense. It's about the politics because the economics and economists are – they don't agree on a lot, but they agree that a, a wealth tax is a horrible policy. It's, so it's not about that, right? It's about pandering to the progressive base and standing up to the rich and all these kinds of things that get Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders uh, campaign donations and checks and uh, retweets. But here's the thing. All of these politicians that are doing this don't seem to get that they're actually playing into the hands of Texas and Florida who are saying, come on in, no state income tax uh -huh. here, right? Uh -huh. uh, and, and so Elon Musk just picked up and moved out of California. Ben Shapiro picked up his company, moved out. You're going to see this more and more and more. And honestly, that's what you get. I'm, uh, there's a reason I'm, I'm talking to you, Brad, from Texas. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, I got to get out of D.C. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, you do. I don't know what you're doing there. Um, you know, it's interesting. I find, uh, I find these arguments to be pretty obvious, right? Like taking someone's wealth they saved and have already been taxed on is a completely ridiculous, uh, it's totally antithetical to American society in my view. But I will say the polling is pretty good on it. I mean, like it, you ask people, should we take 1% of Jeff Bezos's money? You're going to get 60, 70, 80% approval for these policies. People like sticking it to the rich guy. And I think that is central to this. How do you overcome that and have people understand that this isn't just bad for Jeff Bezos, it's bad for everybody? Well, it's about understanding the economics of these things, because oftentimes they sound great as political slogans. And you're right. I mean, these things, even a $15 minimum wage polls well with 60% of the country these days. Yeah. People don't understand the full ramifications, and they think that you can just vote your way to more free stuff and more free money. It's on people like us to really communicate the facts, the research, the economics of these things to try to help people see, because otherwise what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to pass them face the consequences, and then learn. And I would hope for all the American people's sake that that's not the route we have to go down before they realize how misguided some of this stuff is. Yeah, I think, I think new, I mean, in theory, a media could do a lot to help this problem. I know there's been some polling over the years that I think has been really good on this, like when you talk about a global warming policy. People say, do you want to stop global warming? And they'll say, yes, it'll be 70 and 80 percent. You know, of course, I want to do a carbon tax or whatever. When it says uh, they if, ask a follow up question, if it raises your electricity bill five dollars a month, it drops from like 70 percent to 20 percent because people don't actually there's there's never an idea that there's a cost benefit analysis here. It's just a benefit analysis. And anything looks good in just a benefit analysis. Right. And we actually saw the same thing uh, with Medicare for all during the Democrat primary. Mm. They would talk about how, oh, look, it gets a majority support. And then you look a little closer into the poll. The first question, do you want Medicare government health care for all? Whatever, 60 percent, 57 percent, even if it means doubling taxes. Nope. <laughs> Even if it means you lose your private insurance. Mm, nope. nope. Both of those things are facts, right? And as soon as you provide people with those facts, the support changes. And that's the problem is right now, partly because of, I agree, you know, liberal media spin on these issues, but partly also just because of a lack of education. People don't understand the actual realities at play in some of these debates, so they fall for the political slogans. I do think it would be a worthwhile development in the media it would be a you know, moderate to conservative leaning company that was doing polling that didn't feel like push polling. Some of the stuff you see out there, there is some conservative polling, but a lot of times it feels like they're going for a, a particular result. I remember the Reason Foundation did a lot of this at one point, and it was really helpful. I mean, it, it showed how if people just get a, a little bit of information on the topic, 
their mind changes on these issues, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wishing uh, for too much here. Uh, Brad Palumbo, he is the opinion editor at the Foundation for Economic Education and a contributing author at the Washington Examiner. Uh, Brad, thanks so much, man, for coming on. Get the hell out of D.C. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. <laughs> Back in a second. All right, you made it to the last segment of the show. You're in the Cool Kids Club. Uh, don't forget, we have uh, Andrew Cuomo's Awful Mugs. We have Chris Cuomo is Worse Mugs. And now we have Don Lemon is Worserer uh, Mugs that are up available uh, for you to pick up as well. Uh, there they are. Don Lemon is Worserer. Get it at stewdoesmerch.com. Before we leave, I want to tell you a shameful uh, thing that has come out. Uh, only 13 states have fulfilled their patriotic duty to vote on an official state dinosaur only 13 states uh did te- does texas have one i don't know i'm gonna have to find out uh, this is a travesty it's a sham it's a mockery it's a travesham mockery and we must repair the damage we'll see you tomorrow